This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about human ecology. We explore ways in which past people living in the Southwest used and interacted with the landscape, and how some of these ways of living can be relevant to our changing world. It's a good show. Stay with us. We have sort of this idea that these sort of contradicting ideas, um, this fantasy about the wilderness and how it's like this pristine, you know, untrammeled, quote unquote, place. You know, if you just start looking around and seeing all of the evidence of prehistoric occupation here, there's no way that people didn't have a profound effect and that people weren't, you know, integral participants um, in a lot of those ecosystems. today's show, we talk about humans' relationships with the land with Kate McGargle. Kate is a PhD candidate at the University of Utah. There, Kate combines archaeology and ecology to ask about how people who lived in the Southwest interacted with the landscape around them, specifically through gathering food, wood, and using fire as a tool to alter the landscape. Here, we explore pinyon juniper woodlands, what people have used them for in the past, what they're used for now, and how the use and management of these landscapes has changed. We examine what these findings could tell us about how to manage our landscapes into the future. So I was wondering first if you could tell me what human ecology is. In my mind, it is like such a big thing. I mean, of course, like in my little world, I think it's everything. In the most basic generic sense, human ecology is just the way in which humans scaled from the smallest unit as individuals into like huge globalized society like we have today how humans interact with environments that can take tons of different forms the form that i look at specifically is resource extraction in subsistence and foraging economies so in prehistory you know there wasn't like global trade um, at least not on the scale that we have with ships and airplanes and stuff. Um, So I'm looking more at like small scale societies and how they extracted the resources they needed from their surroundings and what that did to the surrounding ecology. So, you know, in some places we have um, resource depletion, you know, a situation that everybody is probably familiar with, with a lot of like conflicts and stuff that we have and deforestation is an issue that occurs now as it did in prehistory as well. But there are other situations, and this is what I'm really interested in in looking at, where traditional subsistence economies actually set up really long-term and sustainable interactions between people and their environments. And so one of the things with uh, like the firewood focus that I have is I'm interested in how people's collection of firewood and sort of thinning of fuel loads in different types of woodlands actually contributed to the fire regime that those woodlands are basically adapted to basically trying to understand how people are an important player in those ecosystems and ultimately you know how we might use some of that information to better manage some of the wildfire issues that we have today and there's also sort of a an angle of um, trying to give 
indigenous communities, many of which still are in a subsistence or traditional format, take a lot of those resources from public lands today, basically giving those communities some more kind of articulated information from some of the studies that I'm doing um, with other people as well to basically say, look, what we're doing is a sustainable practice. And in fact, it actually meets a lot of land management goals by doing things like thinning fuels that might cause larger scale wildfires and that sort of stuff. The idea is to look at how people are actors, um, like really integral, important pieces of ecosystems. And today, I think we have a lot of like value judgments we place on that, like people are bad, and agriculture is bad, and you always hear that kind of stuff. But I think that that isn't necessarily the case. And often in many, especially small scale societies, people are a really important part of ecosystem relationships. And we can maintain that um, today. So... I think that's, you know, kind of the applied notion anyway of some of the research. Can you tell me a little about some of these prehistoric small-scale communities that you study here in the area? Um, Yeah. So like in the Moab area? Or the Colorado Um, Plateau area. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I do have an ongoing project around the what is now called the Bonderman Field Station for Rio Mesa. Um, it's the University of Utah uh, research station um, that you are aware of, I'm sure, uh, out along the Dolores River. I have an ongoing archaeological project there that is intended to basically develop our knowledge of the sort of broad archaeological assemblage of that area because not really a ton of like survey coverage or research has been done Um, specifically in that sort of Dolores Triangle, what do they call it, like the Rose Garden, you know, Jeep Safari area, um, where there's just like a lot of canyons and plateaus and mesas and things like that. There's a really high level of ecological variability there. And so that leads to some interesting questions of how people might have utilized that landscape differently across that ecological gradient. So that's basically what I'm looking at again, with an eye towards how are people using woodland environments because they need have that need for access to firewood, how might that be different than they use other environments? The conclusions are still not made, <laughs> but most of the archaeology that we see out there is not like big cliff dwellings or pit house villages or anything like that. It's a lot more these really lightly used I would call them hunting camps or food processing camps where we find tool flake scatters, uh, archaeologists call them lithic scatters, and we find, you know, lots of ground stones, so surfaces where people were probably grinding seeds or other food materials just to process them a little bit on site as they collected them. And we also find what's pretty exciting to me because I'm interested in firewood is uh, like ash-stained soil and basically evidence of prehistoric campfires or, you know, hearths at some of these probably temporary encampments and just more evidence that people were cooking and processing food with heat or maybe processing tool material with heat as well. So the picture that is painted is a pretty ephemeral or light use of the land, um, not like a big permanent settlement of some kind out there. Whether that's like a seasonal round where people would come in a certain season to, you know, follow game or to gather particular plant resources that were ripe, um, it kind of remains to be seen. But one of the particular characteristics that I've been looking at is just the distribution of site density across that ecological gradient. 
And one of the things that I think is really cool that we found just in really preliminary analysis is that the juniper pidgin woodland is actually where the densest sort of site presence is, archaeological site presence, which is actually kind of far away, like not super close to uh, water sources by and large, because, you know, you think of the Dolores River or even the Colorado River is like down in the canyon and you have the scree slopes and sort of the sandy uh, benches and stuff that you know, certainly there's archaeology in those places, um, but most of the archaeology we've been finding there is actually higher elevation in amongst the trees. Um, and this is, I think, pretty recent archaeology, like yeah, can you late tell prehistoric, me, though. Can you give me some dates about when we're talking about yeah. large ranges, if necessary? Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's total speculation. It's it's All I could say is large ranges because we haven't gotten any material to directly date just yet. Um, So everything that I can say about the chronology of occupation there is really based on projectile point types that we've found. And for the most part, the projectile point types are like the very small arrowhead type of thing that people usually associate with late prehistoric or even like post-contact occupation of that area. Um, So pretty recent which is also useful because we could, you know, pretty confidently say that the in, the environment itself wasn't too different back then. Yeah, so, totally. I was curious about that. Yeah. So, you know, I can picture it, and anyone who's been there can kind of picture how it looks now. But mm-hmm. over this time period that we're talking about, what what it could have it looked like? Would it have been very different? I mean, I don't think so. Certainly, there's been a lot of change. I mean, one of the biggest things that we think about with especially these small-scale subsistence economies, is the fact that uh, pinyon pine trees have not been here really that long, either in the Colorado Plateau or the Great Basin. They are actually a really recent, I think somewhere between seven and 8,000 year arrival to this broad intermountain region. And so I'm pretty sure all of the archaeology that we're seeing, at least in my project looking at sort of the surface deposition of archaeological sites is definitely more recent than that. Uh, At least that's my opinion. I guess I would love to get a direct date to really like empirically validate that idea. But just based again on the projectile point types, yeah, pretty recent stuff. So things that have been happening since European settlement of this area, Mormon settlement of the area, the landscape has changed a lot in some places, especially a lot of those river bottom lands are very different now between the ranching that happened and the way that the river behavior has changed with the damming of the river and the channelizing of the river. So a lot of those lower areas, I think, you know, the plant distribution and plant communities in those areas are probably a little bit more dry. We have less large cottonwood galleries. Of course, there's the influence of things like the knapweed and tamarisk, which wasn't here in prehistory. But I think for the most part, those higher tableland areas where the juniper pinion forest is now, it was probably pretty similar to that, you know, a thousand to 2000 years ago, even. Would there have been more water in general in the area, more precipitation? in the past? That's a good question. I don't, I couldn't really tell you. That's definitely a question that I have about especially the recent past. You know, a lot of people are doing work trying to tease out some of the details of monsoon signal and how that has probably fluctuated through this area over 
really the whole Holocene, like the last 10,000 years or so. And also looking at the influence of El Nino, La Nina influence on precipitation patterns, especially, but also temperature throughout the area. I was curious because I think of uh, large scale movements that a Mm -hmm. lot of people have attributed to the drying of the Southwest and that kind of stuff. And I just like the mega droughts. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know if any of that if that was part of the picture. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be the big droughts that happened to depopulate the Four Corners area, for example. Again, without a really tight, like, uh, date chronology of some kind for the area, we really couldn't say if it was also depopulated closer here to Moab in the similar way as it was, like, even just a little bit south of us. My guess is that it certainly influenced the area, but still need more data. Um, so you were saying that your findings are that you're seeing a lot of use in these, we, what I would call upland, woodland mm-hmm. um, areas. Why do you think that is? Well, as someone obsessed with firewood, I think it's because partly because the woodland environment really offers a, maybe a fuller set of um, things that people needed to just kind of hang out in. Firewood is probably an important one if you're going to be cooking stuff. But, you know, things like the pine nuts also were a big deal. And I think, I mean, even if you look at just some of the game trailing and stuff today, you can see that there's a lot of trailing through the woodlands and like the deer population and some of the larger birds and things like that. While they certainly spend time down in the river corridor, they're also, you know, utilizing the woodland areas just as much, maybe more in some cases, or making it part of sort of a travel route as they're going between resources themselves. So I think that they were probably a really strategic place for people to have like a base camp of some kind, um, where maybe they would have to go, you know, a little ways to access water, but perhaps there was some sort of daily route or other kind of logistical setup where people could access water, but then wanted to be close to some of those woodland resources too. So yeah, it it would be great to get some of those direct dates on some kind of like organic material. Um, But it would also be great to do more analysis looking at maybe some of the material, like the residues that's left on the ground stone or any other kind of pollen analysis or even faunal analysis, like looking at animal remains that are found at some of these sites. Not that we found a ton, but sometimes with that kind of material, we can get to like what season were people actually living in these sites. And then we can maybe say a little bit more about specifically, was it during pine nut season? It would be great if that all lined up, it would paint like a really clear picture. But I think the thing The challenge with a lot of archaeology is that you never have a clear picture, so you have to sort of try to build a story from what can be really sparse data or, you know, you have to just be really clear with your assumptions about, you know, what you're drawing from, some of the things you can observe in the present and how those may or may not be the same in the past and go from there. So you mentioned firewood and forage in these pinion juniper woodlands what are some of the other ways in which people might have been interacting with these woodlands are people burning these areas at all Mm. to increase forage or Mm -hmm. is that something that you've seen or heard of right well i couldn't say for this like really local area let's talk um, about let's talk about bigger fire patterns yeah 
So some of the stuff that I've worked on more in the Great Basin is involving modern people, who, traditional practitioners of different subsistence practices um, in the Great Basin. So mostly Shoshone and Paiute folks who have allowed me and some colleagues to come along with them and just kind of see what how they use some of the very similar types of juniper or really pine-dominated woodlands um, over in Nevada. One Another one of the challenges of getting even ethnographic data is that a lot of the practices um, that were traditional to these areas have been prohibited or there's been sort of a, a break in the lineage of the practice of them. And fire is a really kind of big piece of that because there's a lot of sort of stigma against intentionally setting fire to places, especially from sort of the European perspective of, you know, the settlers coming into these areas. And so in a lot of places where we think traditional burning was probably happening in the Intermountain West, we don't actually have a continuous version of that practice to observe, you know, into the ethnographic and sort of data collecting period, I suppose, um, direct data collecting period. That being said, uh, people in the Great Basin that we've talked to certainly talk about setting small-scale fires, you know, not things that are destroying trees, but things that are maybe just burning off the duff and the grass underneath things like um, pinyon trees that actually allow the nuts that drop to be more easily seen and gathered easier. Mm. There's also uh, this really great woman who does a lot of traditional practice out in central Nevada who was telling us that the limbing of some of the pinyon trees, like basically how fire would kind of keep branches from growing super low to the ground, that that actually keeps the trees healthier and helps them be more productive of pine nuts. And so people actually setting fire, like those low-level fires to the pine nut groves may actually make the groves produce more pine nuts to begin with. And that's also something that uh, my PhD advisor um, has done some work on, not with pine trees, but with oak trees in California. And they're finding a really similar pattern where the burning and sort of the thinning and maintaining um, these big oak groves, like in the central mountains of California, by traditional practices actually makes it so that the groves themselves produce more acorns because um, they're collecting acorns to make flour out of and also keeps uh, like a lot of the insects and things that will infest the tree nuts and you know eat them before the people can eat them it actually keeps those pests down quite a bit by just kind of thinning it out and keeping keeping things burned underneath it essentially so so that's some of the like actual ecological um, systems that we hope to study kind of with some of this work. I'm curious if you guys have any idea of how long some of these practices have been occurring. I think, and there's there's a lot of people that think that people, I mean, even before we were homo sapiens, were setting fire to landscapes and having control of fire and, you know, using it both in this landscape fashion and for cooking um, and sort of the home fire type style. I think that, you know, given that assumption that before people ever left Africa, they were practitioners of fire um, use on the landscape. I think that it, it just, they brought that with them across the world. And 
Whether or not it was the exact same type of ecological relationship is definitely a question. And certainly I think that that has changed over time. But we see, you know, some, again, very sparse, but in my opinion, compelling information uh, from archaeological sites, even really ancient ones, hundreds of thousands of years old and over a million years old, if you really want to interpret it the way that I think we should interpret it. Evidence that people were setting fire, controlling fire. Another thing that my advisor has worked on is with a group of people that study what we call anthropogenic fire practices in the outback of Australia and looking at how some of the indigenous people there have what is probably tens of thousands year old uh, practice of setting fire to some of the grasslands and how it sets up really a situation where on the larger scale of that area, you have a higher homogeneity of ecosystems. And so there's a lot more sort of um, edge points where different ecosystems are next to each other. And that promotes wildlife diversity and plant diversity and resource diversity for people, but also all of the other sort of biological diversity indicators that ecologists talk about and biologists talk about. So I think that we still have a lot of work to do to really test this idea especially in prehistory where that can be really challenging, especially since we've had like glaciers and things melting and lots of really big changes uh, in North America. But I, my opinion is that people probably brought fire with them when they came to North America and all types of different cultures that developed here in North America probably had some kind of practice to burn landscapes and to collect firewood and use fire in those different ways in their local ecosystems. So people are, though, extracting the resources after a fire, you know, they're extracting things and then they're also cutting down wood for firewood for cooking. Mm -hmm. Is there thoughts about how people weren't able to deplete these resources slash are there examples of when they did deplete the resources? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, going back to like that question of the Four Corners area and some of the issues that came up for those really dense populations down there were, were probably really dense populations. There have been some researchers, paleoecologists who also do a work in um, archaeology that have looked at the area around Chaco Canyon, for example, um, and looking at some of the pack rat middens and the change in pollen in those sort of layers of the pack rat middens over time has suggested that there may have actually been quite a bit more of a woodland around there back when, you know, the earlier stages of the sort of Chaco development happened. And probably what occurred there was that you have this really dense kind of population center, you have a huge need for fuels, and you have a type of environment that doesn't grow wood that fast. And so then you get deforestation. Certainly, prehistory has lots of cases of resource depletion, just like in the modern day. And so the Chaco, an example, and other areas like in the uh, Four Corners sort of Puebloan archaeology has some examples of that. These are some of the questions that I would like to ask <laughs> in the future. And some of the hypotheses that I have about why was it depleted in some areas and not in other areas, or was it depleted in other areas, and how do we even figure that out? I think that there might be some situations where traditional firewood collection, for example, was happening in such a way that there were social institutions in place to prevent people from 
overtaking from specific areas. If you have small enough population as a ratio to the availability of woodlands, um, hopefully people will figure out that moving around will actually produce a higher quality firewood and higher quality of other resources as well, because certainly people are, you know, doing multiple things at once. They're not just going out and getting firewood. Um, but yeah, looking at how sort of the social behavior and the seasonal behavior, like the seasonal rounds that people would do um, here and in the Great Basin, how that setup was had multiple purposes of acquiring resources and also had the result of not fully just decimating a woodland and extracting all of the firewood. Yeah. Thanks. Um, <laughs> we'll, so I'll, yeah. I'll switch gears for just two more questions. Sure. Um, I was curious what first got you interested in archaeology and then human ecology. Oh, yeah. Uh, something that helped to pull a lot of those pieces together was uh, working for the National Park Service. I got to work as a um, Park Service ranger uh, at a at Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, um, and I've also done some other work sort of more broadly in the area for the Park Service. And, you know, at that time, I wasn't really doing archaeology, but I was um, either interpreting sort of nature and archaeology to some extent um, for visitors, or I was looking at sort of other resources in the national parks. And everywhere I went, there was also archaeology. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just started to like, ask myself more and more, you know, well, people have been here forever, um, for thousands of years. And we have sort of this idea that these sort of contradicting ideas, um, this fantasy about the wilderness and how it's like this pristine, you know, untrammeled quote unquote place. Um, and I think that that those words have like certain connotations relative to society today and the way that we do deplete resources and trammel things today. Um, but it has other connotations when you think of what kinds of interactions native people had on this landscape and how they, again, were an integral part of the ecosystems of this landscape. So it's not, you know, if you just start looking around and seeing all of the evidence of prehistoric occupation here, there's no way that people didn't have a profound effect and that people weren't, you know, integral participants um, in a lot of those ecosystems. So I just started asking myself that a lot more. And I studied anthropology as an undergraduate um, at the University of Arizona almost by accident <laughs> uh, because I was doing other stuff and, you know, changed majors and didn't know what to do. And um, so I did that and then came up here to Utah to work for the Park Service and just started making all of these observations and eventually decided that um, this was something that, you know, a person could study and went back to grad school. And it's been really cool to just start to see how many different people look at this type of topic from so many different angles. And then my final question is, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? You know, I, it's funny because I'm realizing more and more um, that it's very different than what I thought coming in. Like I kind of thought I could like be in my own little headspace and just like tinker with these problems on the computer or something. And that's certainly a lot of what one does as a scientist. But the thing that I actually enjoy the most is working with people, um, like talking to other scientists whose fields, you know, coincide with my topics of interest. 
um, and also talking with people like doing the ethnographic work and just kind of understanding more and more about what people do and their perspective on the landscape and what people you know how they make choices on how to interact with the landscape um, like the people I was talking about in central Nevada earlier I just thought that that was the neatest thing and I it's very enriching to be able to do um, like this cultural exchange and work with people across the board on on all these types of topics um, same thing with land management folks um, yeah just trying to understand it from that sort of bureaucratic angle and traditional practitioner angle and the academic angle and trying to bring some kind of synthesis to all of that for the way that I like to think what the point is of even studying this stuff is I just find that really enjoyable I guess and I also think you know having a little bit of a um, background in being involved with land management agencies I also think that it's a niche that um, is kind of happening it's there's a lot of science and management and traditional um, activism that's kind of coming together right now in across the country. And it's just such an exciting place to be trying to help out a little bit. Um, and hopefully, you know, it makes me very hopeful, I guess, about some of these really daunting <laughs> situations that we're in with climate change and, yeah, a lot of the impacts that we're only just now beginning to understand. Um, but yeah, working with people, I guess, makes me hopeful and it's also super enjoyable. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you so much for this interview, Kate. It's been yeah. really fun to hear about your work. Thanks. The music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. The Science News comes from Science Daily. Student interviews are coordinated by Chrissy Post. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZM.